Hey, two quick things um, just before we, we got a great text uh, today, a long text uh, today, but uh, two quick things. Um, number one, if you didn't, uh, if you don't have a Bible today, we have our brand new large print Bibles, so don't be afraid to raise your hands and we'll bring one to you that you can use during the service today. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, you are welcome to take one of these home uh, with you if you want to have a Bible. Um, if you want to follow along with a Bible on your phone, that's perfectly fine too. So, um, so Bibles. And the other thing is if, um, if you're interested in uh, going along with us to Israel in January, we're going to close the signups for that trip at the end of this month. So at the end of July, we'll close that up. Uh, we've got a bunch of people going. It's going to be a fantastic trip, but we always have room for you. So if you're interested in coming along, um, you can grab me afterward. I think we've got a few mo more brochures, but you can also uh, look on the church website and there's a, a whole page dedicated to that Israel trip and you can download the information and the, the registration link is, uh, is right on there. So as I said, we're going to be in, um, we have a great text today. It's Mark chapter 9. We're going to finish the chapter today. We're going to look at verses 30 through 50. Um, but before we do, uh, let's just pray and ask the Lord to just continue to bless our time together and in particular just to bless uh, our time in the Word. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning and we thank you for what you've already done here in our midst, Lord. We thank you for our time of worship. Lord, we thank you for every person who is here this morning, Lord. Um, some people, Lord, we know are going through uh, difficult times, Lord. We're so thankful that they're here. Lord, and more importantly than that, we know that you're thankful that they're here as well, Lord, uh, to meet with you and to be encouraged through your word, Lord, to be encouraged uh, by your people. And Lord, we pray that that's exactly what would happen uh, even now, Lord, as we open up the Bible. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church today, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Mark chapter 9, and we're continuing through uh, Mark's gospel and his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And like I said, we come this morning to the second half of chapter 9, and we're going to look at it in its entirety because we're going to see that it's really all one section with, very much with all one central thought. And though most often, if you've heard this taught, you've probably heard it divided up and taught in separate sections, because I think you'll see as we go through, there is a month of Sundays, maybe even more than a month, but there's at least a month of Sundays just in these 20 verses. But I really think that the, the context really kind of demands that we look at them all together. And I hope that we're going to see why as we go through. Uh, the one thing we're going to see is that Jesus gives us a real heavenly perspective. He gives us heaven's insights into who really are the greatest and the least. So you remember we've just come from some pretty incredible events with Jesus and his disciples. Remember they've been on this little excursion kind of out of the Galilee up to that area we call Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles to the north. And this epicenter of paganism that was right there, sort of within the borders of Israel, but it really becomes for us the backdrop of some of the most incredible passages I think that we've seen so far. We had, you know, Peter's declaration, you remember, of Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus' proclamation that on that truth that he would build his church, and of course that the gates of hell would not prevail against, against it. Immediately after that, we had the transfiguration of Jesus up there atop Mount Hermon as he, you know, the, the revelation of some of his glory there to Peter and to James and to John, followed almost immediately again by this confrontation that they had with the devil and his demonic forces as soon as they got back to the valley below. And we saw the deliverance of that young boy from an evil spirit by Jesus himself. We saw that just in our text last time. So this has been a, an eye-opening time for the disciples, really as Jesus now is, is kind of shifted into high gear, if you will, in really preparing them for his coming departure. 
which at this point is probably just five or so months away. And so now as we continue on in chapter 9, picking up just there in verse 30, we read that then they departed from there, so departed from Caesarea Philippi, and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. So this passage kind of marks a milestone, right? Jesus is here kind of leaving the north country, and this sentence, in fact, starts the very final journey of the Lord Jesus down to Jerusalem and the cross that we know was waiting for him there. So here he's passing through Galilee for the very last time during his incarnation, right? So this is the last time for so many of these scenes and so many of these memories. And here he is specifically alone with his guys, just keeping kind of to themselves. Jesus doesn't want to attract crowds at this point. He doesn't want to be thronged by the people because look what it says there next in verse 31. It says, For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. So remember, the focus of Jesus from this point on is really the disciples. His ministry now, for the most part, to the multitudes had kind of concluded, and his real heart was in preparing these 12 men and preparing them in particular for the reality of the cross. You know, we see that Jesus returns again to this theme, but we notice that this time he kind of layered in a little bit more detail. If you remember, it was back at the end of Mark uh, chapter 8 that he introduced this subject. It was on the, their way up to Caesarea Philippi. It says in Mark 8:31 that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we remember that since that point, he's been drilling into the heads and into the hearts of the disciples that his mission as the Messiah was not going to be what they thought it was going to be, right? He was not going to ride in on a white horse and overthrow the Romans, but instead that he was going to be rejected and he was going to suffer and he was going to die. And this, of course, was not at all the picture at all that the Jews had of what the messianic mission was. And now here, Jesus adds a little bit more detail specifically about his betrayal. And that word there that's translated betrayal is delivered, right? It speaks, of course, of that betrayal and the, the delivering of Jesus that would soon come at the hands of Judas. But it's interesting, notice here that Jesus says he is already being delivered. Because as far as Jesus was concerned, this was already happening right then. All of this he knew was already in the works down in the city of Jerusalem, right? He knew exactly what Caiaphas was plotting. He knew what Annas was thinking. He knew what the Sanhedrin was planning, you know, to kill him. He knew that all of that was happening, and he also knew that the betrayer, right, Judas Iscariot himself, was sitting right there looking at him as he was trying to teach them. And yet, in spite of all of that, right, in light of all of that, Jesus is trying to prepare these men for all of that. And most importantly, notice, look at what it says at the end of the verse. He's trying to prepare them to get them to start to see beyond the crucifixion right on to the resurrection, Right? What a great word of application in our own lives, right? That we need to look beyond the crucifixion that's right in front of us and look ahead at the resurrection that we know is coming to us. Right? Now we know that from the writings of the New Testament that the disciples would eventually get to know these things that Jesus knows here. Right? We know Peter says, 
that he was indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, right, to endure all that he did. We know John tells us in the Revelation that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, right, which is to say that this was all a part of the Father's plan for the redemption of the human race, right? Now, the disciples would eventually put all of these things together, of course, as the Holy Spirit would later come and give them this understanding. And yet for now, look what it says next in verse 32. It says, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Now we remember, right, the last time that one of them, remember it was Peter back in chapter 8, Remember when Peter tried to interject with his thoughts on the subject? Remember he tried to tell Jesus that this whole dying on the cross thing was not a good, a good idea, right? It simply had not gone very well for Peter, right? And earned him this really stinging rebuke. So at this point, all of these guys kept silent, at least as far as asking Jesus about this subject. But what we're going to see is that the disciples, they actually had plenty to say as they were headed back to the Galilee. Look what it says next in verse 33. It says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? So here we are back at what has been kind of the base of Jesus' whole operations, right? Probably Peter's house there right in Capernaum, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they're back there now in the house. And so now Jesus asks them what it was that they had been so very busy and, and talking about on what was likely a two-day walk back down here to this place. In verse 34 it says, but they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, think about this, right? Think about the context here of all of this. Jesus has just told them that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified there, He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again on the third day. And what they do with this information is they begin to enter into a discussion about which one of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Right? So here we see, first of all, just the disciples' continued desire for greatness. Over and over, Jesus has told them exactly what is waiting for him down in Jerusalem. Right? And it wasn't pretty. And yet they were still thinking of his kingdom in these earthly terms. And they were still thinking of themselves just as his chief kind of heads of state. And there's just something as we read this, there's something so heartbreaking in the thought that here is Jesus now on his final road to the cross while the disciples are just obsessing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. And obviously, even they knew that because their silence, I think, was an embarrassed silence. Right? They were ashamed at this point because we see that it wasn't just a discussion. What does it say there? It was a dispute. Right? It was an argument. Now, I'm just going to ask for a quick show of hands. If any of you have ever been in an argument with another Christian or a group of Christians about which one of you was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, just a quick show of hands, right? Don't be embarrassed. Okay, nobody, right? And yet here's the, th the reality is, though we may not have argued about it, most of us have probably at least thought about it. Right? We all have to some degree, right? Because in our fallen nature, there is just this inherent desire, not just to be great, but to be what? The greatest. Or at the very least, to be greater <laughs> than the next guy. And of course, Jesus knows this. And so look at how Jesus reacts here to this whole dispute. Verse 35, the beginning, it says, and he sat down and called the 12 
and said to them, now just pause there for a minute. Now, in those days, when a rabbi took a seat, what it meant this is that he was about to teach something. And not just to teach something, but when he sat down, it meant that he was about to make a very important kind of a pronouncement about something specific. And he would sit down. And so Jesus here sits, I think, to help ensure that what he was about to say to these guys was really received by these guys as something that was important. Now, at this point, I got to say, if I were Jesus, which you're all lucky that I'm not, right? But if I were Jesus, I would have sat these guys down, but I would have rebuked them radically, right? But instead, rather than coming down on them for this desire to be the greatest, what Jesus is going to do instead is he's going to give them and he's going to give us some very important insight about how true greatness is defined by heaven. Look at verse 35 again. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now remember, Jesus has been trying to teach these men, first of all, that the way he came into his kingdom was going to be very different than they imagined. Now here he's continuing to show them that just the way of the kingdom itself is also going to be radically different than anything they could have imagined, right? That the kingdom of God is going to be unlike, it's going to be completely unlike all other kingdoms, right? So this is heaven's definition of kingdom greatness. Because in all other kingdoms, right, greatness is pretty much always identified by power and by ruling over other people. But in God's kingdom, Jesus says greatness is going to be marked by serving others. So the kingdom greatest serve others. And so important is this message to the heart of heaven that the rest of this entire section is devoted now on Jesus' teaching on this theme. And in fact, this is one of only a few of the teachings of Jesus that Mark even records, right? We've said Mark is this kind of a fast-moving gospel, right? For a Roman audience, it's focused on the actions of the ministry of Jesus rather than so much on his teachings, right? There's no record of the Sermon on the Mount. There's no Upper Room Discourse. There's no Olivet Discourse. Overall, we said, there are far fewer red letters, right, in Mark's gospel than any other. And yet, in this chapter, look in your lap, the rest of the chapter effectively is written in red. This is one single teaching that Jesus gave which deals with this subject of both the importance, first of all, of servanthood and secondly, of humility. That those are the true measures of greatness in Jesus' kingdom, which is to say, this is important. It was important to the Holy Spirit that this specific section of teaching be included for us, though so many others were not in Mark's account. And we're going to see, as we continue, that this subject was so important to Jesus that he is going to use a number of examples and some extremely powerful language and some images and some warnings and some admonitions to really drive this point home. And he needs to because, just as it is with so many other different things, the, the biblical picture of greatness right, is the absolute upside down, or, or maybe the better way to think of it, it's the right side up, of the way things should be, right? Because the world and the culture has its idea of greatness. And here Jesus comes in and he says, actually, no, this is real greatness. You want to be great for God's kingdom, and that's good. But here is how you do it in the kingdom. You do it by serving others. Because it's through serving people 
That's how we really achieve the greatest amount of real influence, real lasting influence in their lives. And that, that word that Mark uses here when Jesus says servant, it's the word diakonos. And it's where we get our word deacon in the church, right? And it's a word that speaks of somebody who attends to the needs of other people and does it by choice, right? Not because they're a slave, but they choose to do it. And so the way Jesus says here, the way to be first was to voluntarily take that place of the, the low, lowest place of service and live for yourselves, I mean, live to serve others rather than live to serve yourself. So again, by way of contrast, the wrong way, right, the worldly way to achieve greatness is based on pride and it's based on the pursuit of power, but the right way is just the opposite, right? It's humility and it's service. And of course, Jesus not only taught these things, but what did he do? He modeled them, right, during his entire time here with these men. And we remember, of course, the very familiar passage. It's going to come for them not too long from this point. But it's that time when they're there in the upper room that John details for us. John 13, it's just after what we call the, the Last Supper. It says this, that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And of course, we know, you've heard it talked about, that this was in that culture, this was the job of the lowest of the low of the household slaves. Right? To be the person that washed off all the dirt and all the crud from your stinky feet, that was a low job. And here Jesus is now doing this for his disciples. And you know the story. Peter protests. He tries to argue with Jesus. But Jesus says, relax. And he proceeds to do it anyway because he had a point to make. And then you know it's at the end of that whole scene. This is what John records. It says in verse 12 that when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. And there's a critical truth for us that's tucked away right there at the end of what Jesus said. And that's this. That if we live the way that Jesus calls us to live, right, if we live by serving him, by serving people, you know what? Our life will actually be happier. Right? We will be blessed. Because the most miserable thing that a human being can possibly do is simply live to serve themselves. Have you ever noticed that the people who are living only for themselves are the most miserable people on the planet? And here's why. Because you can never satisfy yourself. It's this insatiable, bottomless pit that can never really be filled. And so what happens is the frustration just sets in because you just can never have enough and your life is miserable. But on the other hand, the person who's serving, right, there's a happiness and there's a blessedness in that now because now we're living our lives exactly the way that Jesus lived his life. And this is precisely the point that Paul punctuates for us in Philippians chapter 2. It's that classic passage. Philippians 2, I'm going to read it to you from the NIV because I love the way that they have it. He's, Paul says this, that in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, 
but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Wow. Did you hear the very first sentence? Paul is writing this in the very context of our relationships with one another and how they can be the best that they can be. And of course, our lives are all about relationships, right? It's, life is best when our relationships with one another are good. And it's those times when there's tension or there's fracture in those relationships, that's when life becomes more difficult. And the point here is that if we would practice just serving one another, Jesus says that life would be much more enjoyable. So again, I love this part. This is the way the, King James, the New King James says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? In your relationships with one another, we need to have the mindset of Christ, the mindset of humility, and not a mindset of personal protection or personal ambition or personal advancement. Because that's what leads to disputing and bickering, right? This is how we are great in God's kingdom. And now watch what Jesus does. Because just to really drive this home, and I think to further illustrate this on an even deeper level to these guys, it says in verse 36, that then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Right? So this is probably Peter's child, right? They're there in Peter's house. And th this image here with this child now in Jesus' arms, this is kind of the crux in many ways of his entire teaching but at the same time, it's a hard illustration for us to understand in our culture, especially to understand it the way that Jesus really intended it. Because in our culture, we adore children, right? We elevate the importance of children and their welfare. Oftentimes, parents, we elevate it above our own, don't we? But the truth is, in the first century, they actually held the opposite view, right? Children in that day were regarded more so just as property. It was sort of understood that they were to be seen and not heard, right? Children contributed less to the, to the family dynamic, so they were revered less. And the fact of the matter was, is that a child was considered to be the least or literally the very last significant person in the Jewish as well as the Greek and Roman societies, both of which really esteemed kind of that, that fully matured adult. So to be the servant of all, Jesus is saying, includes giving attention even to a child. A child that in that society was a perfect picture and the way that Jesus is using it here, it's a perfect picture of a person in need. So here Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us that greatness comes in being last and in being the servant of all. And who is it that we really need to be serving? The people who most need that care. And that their service, you know, to these people just, we should serve the people just like this child who need the aid of other people to survive. And in fact, if you just glance down to verse 42, Jesus again brings up this idea of these little children, or more specifically, he just says the little ones. And it's very important because the language is a word that specifically means little or small, but not literally, as in their height or their size, but figuratively as in their importance or their dignity. So the words really mean little ones as in those who've been deemed insignificant or of no value. And if we look at Matthew's account of this very same passage, Matthew really clarifies 
that this is the heart of the whole passage. Here's what Matthew records, one of the things that Jesus said. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Right? In other words, Jesus is driving home this point that we cannot consider anybody as insignificant to be served. We can't consider anyone to be unworthy of being saved because of the way that we evaluate them. And so again, in the context of teaching them about being servants, right? the, the idea here is that those who we might think we're tempted to think of them as insignificant or unimportant or even undesirable, that those are the very people, he's telling the disciples, those are the people who most need to be served, those are the people whom he loves, those are the very people that his kingdom will be made up of. It's all of those little ones in the society who are despised and who are looked down upon or that sometimes people see themselves as more important than. And Jesus is making this strong point saying clearly that in my kingdom and among my people, that kind of a mentality will not be tolerated. And to the contrary, he says to receive one of these kinds of people to receive one of these often despised kinds of people, right? The poor people, the ordinary people, the people who have no influence, the people who have no wealth, the people who have no power, the people who have nothing that they can give to us, the people who need things done for them, but to receive them and to serve them and to minister to them in the name of Jesus isn't just to receive Jesus, it's to receive the Father who sent him. That's true greatness in his kingdom. So the heaven's real definition of kingdom greatness is not only that the kingdom greatest serve others, but actually that the kingdom greatest serve the least. And this is such an important idea for us to really grasp as followers of Jesus because this whole thing that the disciples are doing here None of us would do it, right? But the whole thing that the disciples are doing with this self-promotion and this contention, all of this kind of vying and fighting for position, this isn't just a curse in the world, though it is a curse in the world, but when that kind of thing, right? James talks about it. He talks about where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And when we see these kinds of things within a kingdom environment, right, the church for entrance, for instance, when you see people are trying to advance themselves through selfish ambition or through fighting for a top spot because they feel they're better than other people or that they're better than the people even that they're serving or that they don't need to serve these kinds of people, the people that they're called to serve the most, that is about the single worst cancer that can be introduced into any local church. And I am happy to say we don't have a lot of that here. Amen? In, in my almost 25 years of being a pastor, I have to say that when I have seen this kind of selfish ambition, this kind of trying to reach the top by climbing over other people or looking down on other people, not as people to be served, but just as a means to, to make myself great, right? In my mind, when I see that in a person, that person gets sent right to the back of the class before possibly being given any kind of a position of significance in terms of the influence that they have over someone else's life until that thing gets worked out in their heart between them and the Lord and until they become a servant who's willing to do anything and serve anybody that the Lord Jesus puts in front of them, especially those people that we would classify as less than. Those people that our culture would say, right, nobody wants to serve them. Nobody cares about them. But the true servant seeks out that very person and serves them and serves them in Jesus' name by serving them as if they were Jesus. Serving those people in the very same way that we would serve Jesus if he walked in this door this morning. And to treat people in that way is to receive Jesus. 
right? Doing ministry solely for his sake and in his name. And this is so important to his heart. And yet now, poor John, right? Usually it's Peter. But now it's poor young John. Remember, John was the youngest of the disciples. He's probably just in his late teens at this point. And, and John kind of picks up on this idea and how important it was to do things in the name of Jesus. And he says this in verse 38. John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. He says, yeah, Jesus, speaking of your name, we are the guys who are really serious about it. We're out there defending it. We're out there protecting it. Now, we don't know exactly where or when this event happened that John is talking about here. We do remember, don't we, that back in Mark chapter 6, remember that Jesus had sent out the 70. He sent out 70 people to preach the gospel, to cast out demons and all the rest. So it wasn't just the apostles, right? It wasn't just the 12 disciples that had been given this authority and this power. Not to mention the fact that you have all these other people who are becoming disciples of Jesus, although not all of them were necessarily following him all through the land like the 12. So this very possibly was one of those people. But just imagine the scene that John is talking about here, right in the middle of some faith-filled follower about to cast a demon out of a possessed person. Here come the disciples, and they stop him in his tracks. And they start an argument with him, and they forbade him from doing what he was doing. And you put yourself in the shoes of the person who had the demon... Put yourself in the shoes of the family of that person and all of a sudden the big 12 come rolling up and they stop this wonderful deliverance before it even happens. I mean, this is just not a good look. Especially when by his own admission they were forbidding this guy not necessarily for a good reason but simply because he did not follow them. He wasn't a part of their group. He wasn't one of the greatest. Because somehow in their minds, look what has happened, somehow following Jesus had turned into following the disciples. So right here in this text, we have the first hint of denominationalism Right, that we see in the New Testament. Right, All these different divisions that will come within the church. And this is amazing because this is even before the church was officially established. But it all speaks to the fact that there is just something about us by nature. So often we just view anyone who isn't part of our group Right? Maybe they're not part of the Calvary Chapel family. Maybe they're not part of the Southern Baptist. Maybe you know, somebody who's not part of the Assemblies of God or of this particular denomination. Or they're not part of this particular non-denomination that we think they should be. Right, And we start to look at them all of a sudden with this kind of a sense of suspicion. Which, if we're honest about it, is born out of a jealousy that the Lord might be using them instead of us, or that he might be using them more than us, right? Because all of it is a threat to our pride, because we're not operating in humility, because we're not acting as servants. We're not simply out there serving the little ones, but we're trying to be the greatest. So what we do is we find things within that group to be critical of. We find things to divide over because, again, we're fighting to have that top spot. But the reality is we all belong to the one body of Christ. We all come to these different churches we come to because maybe we hear the voice of God there. Maybe that's the place where we're able to worship the Lord. And so this is a place we find that we're able to relate to him and we're able to grow in our relationship with him in that place, in that way. But the truth is, everybody isn't exactly like us. And thank the Lord, then, there are other places where they can go, where they find they can relate to God in that environment. And they find that that's a place where they can grow in their relationship with the Lord. In that place instead of in this place. And it's okay. 
But to create these sorts of divisions and disputes and this tendency to just look at everybody with suspicion, then with the sense that they're, you know, if not suspicion, at least that they're somehow less than us. What that's really called is sectarianism. And it's such a dangerous thing within the body. You guys have heard of G. Campbell Morgan. He was one of the great Bible teachers over in England in the last century. He said something so great. He says, I have found that the more spiritual a person is, the less denominational they are. And that's absolutely the truth. The more we grow into the heart of Jesus, the way that he's revealing himself here, the more that we are just simply thankful for every Christian who's out there serving the Lord, who's out there serving people, especially who's out there serving the little ones. Right? If they're out there and they're serving in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're being faithful to his word, they're trying to help people advance in the kingdom of God, we should be rejoicing, right? Even if they're not a part of our group. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, do not forbid him. He says, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. He says, don't stop the guy for my sake. Because if he has enough faith in me to use my name in casting out demons, he's on my side. Because he's working against Satan. There's only two sides in this battle, amen? And somebody who's working against Satan is not likely to then turn around and become the enemy of Jesus. We are all on the same team as long as we're on Team Jesus. Now... <laughs> With all of that said, let me say this. We do need to balance this, don't we, with a sense of an agreement on the essentials of the faith, right? That Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is God the Son, that he is God who's come to earth in human flesh, that the essentials that we are saved by faith in him and only faith in him, that his blood and his sacrifice is solely sufficient to cover our sins, right? So those kinds of things are not optional in the Christian faith. And I'll just say it, as much as I love them, people who believe the wrong things about those things about the Lord Jesus, they are not on our team just because they use his name in some way. But... For those who do hold to those essentials, we've got to be able to leave room for these different kinds of expressions of what is really this common, beautiful faith. Think about the Apostle Paul, right? Of course, he was a guy that gets it, and he just simply rejoiced whenever Christ was preached. Even if Christ was being preached by people he didn't necessarily see eye to eye with, and even if they were doing it, maybe for the wrong reasons. Remember that point he was in prison there and he wrote to the Philippians and he said that he had heard of these other preachers who were kind of freely roaming around their region and he was preaching the gospel and he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. Paul says, because of this, I rejoice and yes, I will continue to rejoice. And again, I think this is so helpful for us, right? In heaven's real definition of kingdom greatness, not only do the kingdom greatest serve others, but the kingdom greatest serve the least, and the kingdom greatest rejoice over any gospel ministry that's being done. Because we think about all the differing opinions within the body of Christ these days, whether it's about political issues or about different social issues, those things have such a real potential to divide God's people on top of all the different denominations and doctrines and different methodologies that we already have. So in the midst of all of it, we need to remember that God-loving, Jesus-centered, Bible-studying, God-fearing people can still disagree on different things. But if we allow those disagreements, if we lose our love for one another and our unity with each other, no matter what the outcome, we've lost. 
right? The Christian faith is not a competition. We're not vying for Jesus' attention. We're not competing for his approval. Look what Jesus says in verse 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So even the smallest service, when we do it with the right motives, we can be assured we're going to be seen, we're going to be rewarded. Any gospel ministry we do, no matter what denomination we're in when we do it, as long as we do it because we're serving the Lord, no matter how insignificant it might seem, Jesus sees us and will reward us. But, look at the beginning of verse 42, but, he says, and this is where things start to really heat up. So if you're drifting off, come back. But, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So notice the, the, the contrast that Jesus just set up for us in the context of this whole thing. When we serve with the right motives and with the right heart, serving anyone and everyone, even those little ones, the insignificant ones and the undesirable ones, when we serve them with the right heart, Jesus says even the smallest service is going to be rewarded. But if we're serving with the wrong motives, if we stop someone from serving out of our self-serving ambition, if we stumble other people as a result, right? Think about that poor guy who was casting out the demon, right? Think about that poor family who was a part of this, right? If something we do or something that we say causes someone to turn away from following after Jesus because of some kind of a condescending, self-righteous, you're not worthy, you're not one of us kind of attitude, that kind of mentality, Jesus says here, that is worthy of judgment. Judgment so severe, he says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, just for reference, not that it matters, but in that day, there were two different types of millstones, right? Two different sizes. There was a smaller millstone, which would be used kind of by, by a person to grind out a small amount of grain. Then there was the larger millstone, which had to be turned by a donkey, which was used to grind out bushels of grain. That millstone was often called a donkey stone. And which kind of stone do you think Jesus is talking about here? You're right, it's door number two, right? It's the donkey stone that Jesus is talking about here. And again, the point is that if such a small act of kindness towards others is going to be eternally rewarded, then in the same way, any cause for stumbling any of his little ones, the punishment is just as severe because Jesus loves them and he died for them and because they especially matter to him. It's the little ones that especially matter to Jesus. And again, just to clarify that, on the one hand, of course, everybody matters to God, right? Jesus died for the whole world, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we can confidently say that everybody matters to God. It doesn't matter if you're rich and famous. It doesn't matter if you're poor or obscure. It doesn't matter. None of those things really matter because God loves everyone and he cares about everyone. But we do have to recognize that God does have a soft spot for the underdog. We see it all through the scriptures, right? He cares about widows. He cares about orphans. He cares about refugees. He cares about the poor. He cares about the oppressed. They have a special place in his heart. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus is the real champion of the poor. He's the real champion of the common people. He's the real champion of the little people, and we can never forget that. There is no one who's insignificant to Jesus. And what did we see during his whole ministry? He doesn't focus on the high or the powerful or the elite of the day. Jesus spends his time with the people that no one wanted to spend their time with. That's who he came to minister to. 
He ministered to just the everyday average person whose life was broken and they were struggling. Maybe they were struggling economically or physically because of an illness. Maybe they had been ostracized socially because of their behavior. But those are the people that Jesus came and he poured his life out for. And even though God, of course, does love everyone and even though everyone matters to him, there's a soft, soft spot in the heart of the Lord for the people who are broken and the people who are hurting. Right, of course, James says it so well, right? That God resists the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. And that's really the heart of the issue here. This is a strong warning to the prideful heart. The heart that's so filled up with pride that it sees itself as superior to others or it looks down on any group, right? Jesus' very strong warning against that kind of a prideful heart. And, you know, we very often will hear this whole millstone verse quoted, and it's quoted completely out of context. Maybe you've heard it, right? Someone will say something to the effect that if you do something that harms a child, that you deserve to be drowned with a millstone around your neck. And that may or may not be true, but it's not the context of the passage. And what it does is if we narrow it down to that kind of application, it lets far too many people off the hook because the real context of the passage is that if your self-serving desire to be recognized as great causes you to look down on the very people that Jesus died for, and if they are kept from following after him because of it, if they are kept from following after him because they sense that coming from you, there is a millstone with your name on it. A donkey stone with your name on it. And you think about all the different kinds of examples. You know, I remember many years ago we were ministering in Santa Cruz at the Vets Hall right downtown. And Santa Cruz has a tremendous population of homeless people. And every night we'd have donuts on the back table right near the door. And so what would happen is that the homeless people would wander in, grab the donuts, and wander out. And the people in the church, bless their heart, they said, Pastor Bill, Pastor Bill, what do we do? They're taking all the donuts. And I said, we'll see if they want some coffee to go with them. Right? And I'll never forget, broke my heart. There was a man who was very clearly an addict, and he showed up so sheepishly to church on a Sunday morning. And you could tell that he was kind of moving in the direction of trying to discover who God was. And he told me that he had just come from another church where he was met at the door with these words, there's no place for you here. And he was turned away from that church. And how many times have we seen these kinds of things, right, repeated over and over in church history, so often in a racial context, right? Well, you know, your kind meets down the road. Or I think of that, that scene out of the Jesus Revolution movie, if you saw it, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but it's the scene where Pastor Chuck Smith was sitting down in the kitchen and he asks Lonnie Frisbee, that hippie, he says, tell me about your people. Speaking of this entire generation of young people who were lost and searching for answers. And Lonnie Frisbee's answer was something like, you want to know about my people? Your church is closed to my people. We can only walk through open doors, and that's a door that is closed to us. And you know, if there were ever these painful examples of the very kind of thing that Jesus said never to do, right? These are the antithesis of what Jesus was all about. Again, such an important teaching, we can't lose sight of this. And now understand this, it's in this very same context that Jesus makes this next startling statement that you've all heard, Right, if you thought that millstone deal was a tough word, right, that was a strong warning against a prideful heart. Well, here's an even stronger warning against a prideful heart. It's in this context that he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. 
quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus says you've got to take radical steps to eliminate this kind of attitude, right? This kind of sin that stumbles others, you've got to eliminate that from your lives. So this is the real context for this familiar, shocking statement that Jesus makes. This isn't some kind of a, you know, let me just change the subject and I'm going to randomly start talking about hell. This is, let me warn you where those who despise those that I love, let me warn you where that kind of attitude eventually leans up, or ends up. Let me warn you where your pride will take you. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. And this is one of the most graphic warnings that we have, right? It's made to the church that we should never despise those little people. We should never look down on any group of people as being unsavable or undesirable in our own desire to elevate ourselves above those people in trying to be great, right? That we would never despise or oppress or abuse or neglect or reject the ones that Jesus so deeply loves. Because those who have done that are obviously not the true servants that Jesus calls us to be. And Jesus is warning us that they ultimately will have their place in hell. Not because simply of that sin, but because that sin would be indicative of a much deeper problem of a heart that's not regenerated, of a person who's not born again. Right? It's a very severe warning against false leaders. But notice at the same time, Jesus offers up this hope that even they could repent, right, of those attitudes. They could cut off, they could pluck out that kind of attitude from their lives. And this is the kind of sin that was simply running rampant all through Judaism at the time. Right? We talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They just lorded their power over the people. They had no real care or concern for the average person. They just looked down on the common people. And that was the very attitude that Jesus was not going to tolerate in this new work that he was establishing in the church. And that's why we have such a severe warning here. And yet, tragically, it wasn't a lesson that was taken to heart. And although we do see in the earliest days of the church, yes, the apostles finally understood this. And we see from their writings and their ministries, they really took this to heart. But after the death of the apostles, right, as the church went on historically, unfortunately, we see so many people in so many eras and so many seasons where in the church where this whole understanding was just completely dismissed. And the church just bought into the power structures. They started to lord their authority over the little people, right? Just from the institutionalizing of the church where all of a sudden the best seats in the church were reserved for the wealthiest and the most powerful to the the lust for worldly power and for wealth that put the church in bed with the state to those periods where the church just took the word of God out of the hands of the common people so they could hold the power and keep everybody subject to them. To, of course, the time when the church abused its power and partnered with the state during all the colonial times and the the subjugating of native peoples in Central and South America, or even up to our own history in our own country, where the church very often ended up on the wrong side of racial discrimination with the proliferation of segregation. So the history of the church is full of these kinds of donkey stone things. Right? To the point now where now we are bearing the fruit of this because now very often in the secular mind, the church is looked at as an oppressor of people, isn't it? rather than being looked at as the very organism that offers the greatest freedom that one could ever enjoy, right? The freedom from sin 
and the equity and the equality, the true equity and the equality that's inherent in the gospel message. And I think we may have mentioned this a couple weeks back, but, but the question that people are asking now isn't anymore, they're not asking anymore if Christianity's true or if the gospel is true, but now they're starting to ask, is Christianity good? Is the gospel even good? And all because people in the church forgot this lesson that Jesus so passionately and powerfully laid out here. Because in the history of the church, human nature, right, people began to despise the little people and they sought after their own greatness. And we can just fast forward to our culture today and we can see why it's so important. We cannot in any way join in with or get entangled in this kind of thing. And especially today in our, in our current cultural moment, there are so many people outside of the church that have started to see the evangelical church in particular as just simply being synonymous with one particular political party. Right, where, where people see that we're getting more invested in national concerns rather than being invested exclusively in the concerns of the gospel. Where the church, there's parts of the church now that are more concerned with endorsing powerful people than they are with simply saving the little people. And that's the real thing that we've got to be aware of and we've got to watch out for. Because look how Jesus concludes this teaching. It's actually, a lot of people have described these next two verses as some of the most complex statements in the Gospels. Jesus says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. He says, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with, with one another. So now in the context of everything Jesus has been talking about, he adds fire and he adds salt, both of which were what? They were purifying agents, right? That's what they did, especially back then in the ancient world. And so Jesus is basically saying to them here as his conclusion that this attitude of self-seeking, self-serving, ignoring those who are less, Jesus says, I am going to purge this out of you one way or another. He says, I'm going to refine you, I'm going to purify you, so that you will never again say, you know, we told people they could, this person they couldn't minister, or, or what good is just a cup of cold water? That's insignificant, so this person must be insignificant. And then he adds this phrase, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Because here's what can so often happen, and I'm I'm going to go, I'm just going to give Donje a little more time because you know the children, right? The church is salt, right? Part of the purpose of the church is to help to preserve the world from this exact kind of corruption. But if the church buys into the world's view, right, when the church starts to function in this area of power and greatness and of lording authority over the little ones like the world does, at that point, then the church will instantly and automatically lose its intended saltiness. Right? When the church joins hand in hand with earthly, earthly power and just goes along with the agenda of the powers that be in the culture, then the church has lost its flavor and becomes good for nothing. So I think that this is Jesus' strong exhortation that we stay salty. Right? The church is supposed to be counter-cultural. Counter-cultural in every way. And so if we start to align ourselves with any part of the culture, right, with any side of the culture, let me make it simple. If we start to align ourselves with the right or with the left, automatically the church now is compromised. We are to be a different thing. And when we're not a different thing, then we are nothing. We are a flavorless nothing. So we've got to be careful that we maintain the heart of Jesus. 
first and foremost, it's that heart for the marginalized and the rejected and the oppressed. And the only way the gospel is going to spread is that if we do away with this entire idea of the religious elite or this religious country club that we now have joined, that now somehow we get to decide who's worthy and who's not worthy to be a member of this club. Instead, we need to focus on those who Jesus came to save. And I'm just going to close with one more verse, one more reminder. Jesus said it to the religious elite of his day. He said, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom before you. Right? Whenever that moment in history, whenever the church has looked down on people in society, and said, you're unsavable, you're not welcome, any of those things, that's when the church has crossed over and entered the ranks of the religious elite. And we can never allow that to be repeated. Certainly not collectively, right, as a local church body. But we can't allow it to happen personally as individuals either. Right? We need to ask the Lord to search our hearts. Lord, are there people that I despise, right? Lord, you came to seek and to save that, the lost, but are there people that I have a tendency to look down on? Are there people that I want nothing to do with? Are there people who I really think are not worthy to be part of the church? That's a real thing, isn't it? And if we find that in our hearts, what does Jesus say to do? He says, repent. He says, cut that off. He says, pluck that out. And instead, he says, embrace the little ones, right? Embrace the lesser ones. Embrace the least ones. Serve even them in order to truly be great in the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for... The, the admonition, Lord, that your word provides to us, Lord, for the correction it provides when we need it, Lord, we thank you that it so clearly reveals your heart for those that you love so dearly. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would search our hearts, Lord, that if there's anything in us that needs to be corrected, Lord, if there's anything in us that needs to be corrected as a church, we pray that you would do that work. Lord, if there's anything within any one of us individually that needs to be corrected, Lord. We pray that you would bring that to our attention, Lord, and that we would want to bring that thing to you, Lord. Bring it to the foot of your cross and lay it down, Lord, and allow your blood to cover it, Lord, that we can repent of it and be forgiven of it, Lord, and move forward in the right heart, Lord, and with the right attitude. And so we thank you, Lord, for that promise that you will do that for us. Lord, and we want to praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's stand up and let's, uh, let's worship the Lord.